turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, as we reflect on the wonder and joy of our God's self-humbling. Our Savior's birth is certainly glad tidings of great joy. But I'm glad that Mary called us to worship, reminding us of the angel's words, do not be afraid. Because one of the interesting things about Matthew's account is that the Magi's announcement of Jesus' birth did not bring joy in Jerusalem. It brought turmoil. It brought fear because this newborn king of the Jews actually posed a threat to Herod's power and position. After all, Herod owed his throne to the Romans, and Herod himself was not even fully Jewish. Herod was half Edomite. And so all Jerusalem, we are told, was disturbed because everybody knew that Herod would stop at nothing to maintain his position. And so the birth of the Messiah meant trouble was brewing. And just so we get this clear, this didn't happen, Matthew chapter 2, didn't happen right at Jesus' birth, the same as Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 talks about what happened right at Jesus' birth. Matthew 2 takes us a year and a half, maybe two years after the birth of Jesus and talks about the trouble that was brewing in Jerusalem because Magi from the east let Herod know that the Messiah had been born. But the fact that trouble was brewing didn't mean that God was absent or not at work. In fact, Matthew's point in Matthew chapter 2 is that God was fulfilling His Word through the coming of Jesus. It's a theme that, has begun, that had begun from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Over and over, you will read the word or the language of fulfillment. So let's read Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose in, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers, excuse me, among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, 
They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and the mother and, and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So when the Magi came to Jerusalem asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod gathered all the Jewish scholars and they told him, oh, we know where he is. The prophets had said that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's in verse 4 and verse 5. It's a citation from Micah 5 verse 2. But what is interesting is that the Jewish scholars knew where the Messiah would be found, but they had absolutely no interest in paying respects to the Messiah. Unlike the Magi, who were probably Babylonian astrologer priests. And yet these pagans traveled all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah. Now, the Magi probably, because they were from Babylon, they probably didn't know about Herod and his ruthlessness and paranoia. And so in verse 7 and 8, when Herod sent the Magi to Bethlehem, which was about nine kilometers from Jerusalem, so maybe call it uh, a four or five hour walk or camel ride, they probably believed Herod when he said, Oh, please let me know where this child is so that I too may go and worship him. Uh-huh. Now, God guided the Magi to the house where Jesus and his parents were staying. And as I said, by this time, Jesus would have been already a toddler. 
And the Magi, we are told in verse 9 and 10, paid him homage. They brought him precious gifts of gold, frankincense, which is a kind of perfume, and myrrh, which is a spice that is used for embalming. These were gifts that are appropriate for honoring a king. And that's why they brought them. They were honoring he who was born king of the Jews. But in verse 11, Matthew wants us to know that they are actually giving Jesus far more than they had understood. In verse 11, Matthew says, they opened their treasures and uh, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. He wants us to realize that they were giving God the Son incarnate the worship he deserves. He's telling us who this king of the Jews really is. God in the flesh, worthy of worship and adoration. Now that night, God warned the Magi in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so they went home by a different route. And so when Herod realized that the Magi had outwitted him, of course he got angry and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. That would probably, during that time, have been 10 to 20 infants and toddlers. And if you're wondering, so why did that not make the history of, of that day? Well, unfortunately, Herod was actually a very bloodthirsty ruler who had actually executed his wife, a couple of his sons, and a number of, about 300 of his officials. So it's not to diminish the horror of 10 to 20 babies being killed. By Herod's record, this was not much. But Herod's brutality was in vain because we are told that Joseph and Mary were already on the road to Egypt with Jesus. Because Joseph, in verse 13, had been warned by an angel of the Lord the same night the Magi had left. And providentially, the gifts of the Magi, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were all precious substances, came in handy to finance their expenses. But imagine that. The maker of heaven and earth embracing the vulnerability of a toddler born to homeless refugees. That's our God. And Herod's actions remind us that we live in a fallen world that is in revolt against our God. And we, the people of God, face opposition because we follow our king. But at the same time, we need not be afraid Because in the same way that God protected his son, our God has our back. He is our security. And Herod's efforts could not thwart the purposes of God. In fact, his actions helped fulfill God's purposes. Because it allowed for Jesus to fulfill the prophecy. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And then later on, so that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And so we need not fear. 
No matter what happens, our God is in control. And like Joseph, our task is to obey God, trusting Him, committing ourselves to Him, knowing that our God cares for us and that our Lord Jesus Christ understands what it means to be threatened by powerful and malevolent forces. Because this same Jesus willingly entered into this world as a vulnerable baby, spent his early years as a refugee, and then grew up to be a Jewish carpenter subject to poverty. And if you're wondering what it meant to be a Jewish carpenter, imagine a gig worker in this economy. Day worker. You get a job, you do it, you get paid. If you don't get a job, you don't get paid, you don't get food to eat. That was his life. Subject to poverty, subject to sickness, subject to fatigue. And as a Jewish subject, or Jewish as a Jew, he endured the oppression of the Roman Empire. This is the Lord of the universe, enduring all this for us and for our salvation. And so this Christmas, let us rejoice in the self-giving love of our Savior. That is the basis of our own security. See, the salvation of Jesus or the salvation that he brought actually involves nothing less than a new exodus and the reversal of the exile. These are the themes that Matthew is emphasizing as he cites Hosea 11.1 in Matthew chapter 2, that's verse 15, and Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. That's um, what is cited in verse 18. Now, at first glance, Matthew's citations do not seem to fit the context. But as you read them in light of God's story of redemption, you will realize that Matthew is citing Hosea in order to tell us that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Son of God to whom Israel pointed. And you see that in Exodus chapter 4, where God tells Pharaoh, let my son go, speaking of Israel. And by the same token, just as Jesus is the true Israel, as the true son, the massacre of the children in Bethlehem evokes the pain of exile that made Rachel weep. If you read Jeremiah 31, 15, the context is of the people of Israel going into exile. And then in verse 16 and 17, God ends Rachel's tears by promising that he would bring his people back from exile. And you can read it there. So that by putting those two texts together, Matthew is telling us that just as God had rescued Israel from its bondage in Egypt, God was bringing about a new, a greater exodus through Jesus, his son. And if you read this in light of Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, you realize that Jesus comes to bring about a new beginning, nothing less than a new creation. 
so that we see Jesus, the King, who has come to bring in God's kingdom to end the exile by reconciling his people to God. And Matthew is challenging you and me to respond to Jesus. That's why he spends a lot of time talking about Herod, the Jewish high priests, the Magi. Because he wants to challenge us. This Christmas day, will we be like Herod, who was hostile to Jesus? Will we be like the Jewish scholars who knew where Jesus was but were indifferent? So will we go home after the service, enjoy Christmas dinner, take a nap, and forget about Jesus' claim on our lives as we snore the day away? Or will we, like the Magi, worship Christ as he deserves? And my prayer is that as we think of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he is coming to accomplish, we would all see the beauty of Jesus and submit to his authority. Because Jesus was not the kind of king the Jews expected. And Matthew tells us about this reality when at the end of this text, God sends Joseph to Nazareth after Herod's death so that it may be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And this is another one of those passages where you wonder, what was Matthew thinking? There is no prophecy that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Well, I think the best way to understand it is that Nazarene was a term of disdain and derision. Think about when Philip told Nathaniel, his friend, in John chapter 1 about Jesus. Nathaniel's response was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? You see how dismissive he was? And what Matthew was saying was that this king of the Jews would not simply be opposed, or was not simply opposed by Herod. He would actually be mocked and marginalized. Matthew had in his mind Isaiah 53, chapter 3. He was preparing us for the response to Jesus' ministry. Isaiah says, this servant of the Lord was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And we see that as you go on in Matthew's account, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus over and over because he was not the kind of king they wanted or expected. And that rejection culminated in his crucifixion. But here's the wonderful paradox. The crucifixion of Jesus was God's appointed means to accomplish the new exodus and reverse the exile. Because by his death, Jesus purchased our forgiveness so that we would have peace with God. On that cross, Jesus bore God's wrath for us and suffered the punishment we deserve and united with him through faith. 
Jesus' perfect righteousness that fully pleased the Father is credited to us so that we are accepted by God and adopted as His children, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So that here is the blessing of Christmas. We enjoy a peace purchased by the violent death of Jesus. So we rejoice. That peace is the basis of our joy from day to day. And that joy is indestructible because we have been reconciled to God. And just as God fulfilled his word in ways we could not anticipate, when you think of Matthew 2, you think of the way God fulfilled his word, it's just out of the box, mind-boggling. Here's the wonderful reality today. He is still at work in our lives in ways that we could not anticipate and do not often understand. And let's face it, even when his word makes sense of our suffering, it doesn't take away the pain, right? The pain's still there. But one of the beauties of this text is that it points us back to Jesus, God who became man so that he could give his life for us. And because Jesus became a fully human being, as the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 would say, he knows and understands the pain we go through. And because he remained faithful to God in the face of all temptation and suffering, he is able to help us in our weakness. And because he gave himself for us, he actually triumphed. And in him, we have the confidence that we will share in that victory when Christ returns. But in the here and now, because Jesus gave himself for us, we can be sure in every circumstance that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. So in the midst of trouble, we have peace, we have joy as we look to Christ for strength to stay faithful. This same Jesus, who humbled himself to become a human being so that he may die for us, has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And he is faithful. He will never, never go back on his word. And that's the basis of our joy. Our joy is a settled conviction that God is working out what is for our good and for his glory. But admittedly, we don't often feel joyful because, truth is, we're a lot like Herod. We're more Herod than Magi. We don't want to admit it, but deep down, the kingship of Jesus tends to threaten us. Because deep down, we want control. Control of our lives, control of our circumstances, and, well, from time to time, control of others, right? 
And deep down, we, we really find trusting God very, very uncomfortable. Because deep, deep down, like Adam and Eve, we doubt God's goodness. And that's why our lives are filled with conflict and discontent. Now, those of you who opened Christmas presents this morning or last night or the last couple of days, especially those of you who have kids, how long has it been since the kids said, I want something else? I mean, we adults are far more subtle, right? But we still struggle with conflict and discontent because deep down we're trying to impose our own rule. And we struggle to submit to God because we think that freedom means having no limits. We want to do as we please not realizing that following our distorted desires makes us perpetually discontent slaves to our own folly, living under God's righteous wrath. And brethren, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to deliver us from sin's condemnation. But Jesus also came to deliver us from our folly by calling us to die to self, and follow him. See, genuine freedom, biblical freedom, is functioning according to the way God designed us. And the great thing about it is that God created us to flourish under his righteous rule. So freedom actually means being able to fulfill our responsibility to love our neighbor, even when it means we give up our rights. Biblical freedom is self giving service to God, to other people, and to this creation that he has made us because we are his vice regents over this earth. And that's how we know peace and joy as we live out God's reign over our lives by faith. And to some of you, this might sound nuts because we live in a society that has made self-gratification the ultimate good. But again, we look to Jesus, who shows us that true joy is to be found in living not for oneself, but for God and his purposes. And so Christmas is about Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, inviting you and me to take his yoke upon us, to submit to his rule. And in submitting to his rule, Find our rest in Him. And in the here and now, it is the church's privilege and calling to demonstrate this rest, to demonstrate the beauty of biblical freedom. And so we live out flourishing relationships of self-giving love as we care for one another. We live as people who find our contentment in God and we live for His purposes so that in the midst of our struggles, we have a compelling joy that endures through the toughest times. And it is not because we are strong in and of ourselves. Frankly, we are fragile. But we are able to be joyful because the Spirit of God dwells in us. 
And he is transforming and empowering us to live out the life of the new creation. And as the people of God, we look forward to that great day when Christ returns and he will consummate his redemptive work. When everything sad is going to come untrue and all things will be made new as God intended them to be. And we will be with him forever in whose presence is fullness of joy. This is the hope that Christmas proclaims because Jesus, our Savior, was born, crucified, buried, rose again on the third day, and is coming again. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you that though we do not yet see all things put under our feet, yet we see, under Christ's feet, yet we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor for the suffering of death. And we thank you, Father, that in the midst of the turmoil we face around the world, and in our lives, we thank you that we can look to Jesus and we can rest in him. And he invites us to draw near so that we may find grace to help in time of need. But Father, we confess all too often we try to look to Jesus, but our tears blur our vision. We ask then that your spirit would strengthen us so that we may continue to look to Christ, to continue to draw near. And we thank you, Father, that that same Spirit who dwells in us is the one who holds us and grips us so that we would be able to draw near to you. So, Father, we pray as we worship you this Christmas day that you would refresh our hearts Cause us to see the beauty of Christ in you so that we would find our joy, our delight, our all in him and him alone. May the beauty of Jesus transform our desires so that we would desire him and him alone. And we ask this not for ourselves, but for the grace, for the glory and honor of your matchless name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing.